Welcome to a very special podcast interview in honor of National Addiction Treatment Week. I'm your host, Zach Caruso, and today we're diving deep into patient access to crucial addiction treatment, a topic that touches countless lives across the nation. It's the start of National Addiction Treatment Week once again when we dispel myths about addiction, emphasizing that it's a treatable disease, not a moral failing. Using hashtag treatment week throughout the coming days, we'll be sharing stories of hope, recovery, and transformation, demonstrating the true effectiveness of addiction treatment and the significant role the medical community plays in the battle against addiction. Together, we're on a mission to break down the stigma surrounding addiction within the medical field. So stay tuned as we embark on this journey to better understand the state of addiction medicine and how we can collectively work towards more effective solutions. Dr. Anika Alvanzo and Dr. Margaret Jarvis are here today to share their expertise and insights on this crucial matter. Dr. Anika Alvanzo is a graduate of the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences, holds a master's degree in biostatistics from Virginia Commonwealth University, and is board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine. Dr. Alvanzo is a principal at Health Management Associates, and she is a distinguished fellow of ASAM, a past president of the Maryland DC Society of Addiction Medicine, and currently serves as chair of the ASAM Annual Conference Program Planning Committee and secretary for the ASAM Board of Directors. Dr. Margaret Jarvis finished her medical school psychiatry residency and addiction medicine fellowship at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond. She's board certified in addiction medicine, addiction psychiatry, and general psychiatry. She has served on the board of directors and currently is the co-chair of the Quality Improvement Council. She's also worked on the addiction medicine examination in its various forms since 2000, and Dr. Jarvis is the chief of the addiction medicine division at Geisinger. She was previously the medical director at Geisinger Marworth in Waverly, PA. Today, our discussion revolves around the relevant insights report published in the New England Journal of Medicine this August. This report, titled Substance Use Disorder Treatment Falls Short of the Need, which was co-authored by our guests, uncovers the significant challenges faced by addiction medicine in addressing the complex issue of substance use disorder. It sheds light on shortages of specialists and the complexities of care. Without further ado, let's welcome our esteemed guests, Drs. Alvanzo and Jarvis. Thank you both so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I want to give you both a little room to introduce yourself and talk a little bit about how uh, treating addiction has impacted your professional career. I'm Anika Alvanzo. I am an internal medicine trained addiction medicine physician. I've been practicing addiction for the better part of 15 years. I originally got interested in addiction because I had an interest in violence against women and um, had the opportunity to participate in a research study during my fellowship, during residency and fellowship in which I added a violent screening measure to a research study that was being conducted in the OBGYN clinic at Virginia Commonwealth University. And it was in analyzing that data that I saw the linkage between violence, trauma, and addiction and substance use. And that's actually how I got interested in addiction. And in terms of how it has impacted my career, at the time I started practicing addiction, there, you know, it wasn't even recognized officially as a specialty. There were not a lot of people who had interest in this area. And so because of that, it, there ended up being a lot of opportunities because there was a, a void in this space. And so um, I would have the opportunity to fill some of those voids. And so that's how um, the treatment of addiction has impacted my professional career. Awesome. And Dr. Jarvis, same question. I'm curious to hear about uh, your journey and, and your perspective on how uh, treating addiction has impacted your professional career as well. So as I was in the midst of my psychiatry residency, also at Virginia Commonwealth University, I was considering doing a second residency in neurology when a mentor there said, gee, if what you're interested in is that the mind-brain connection, 
consider addiction medicine. So I did a fellowship with uh, Dr. Schnall and did some research there, and there's been no looking back. And it has just been a terrific career. I could not have wanted anything better or different. And yes, there's lots of holes that need to be filled, as uh, Dr. Alvanzo said. But that's part of what's so exciting about it. There's so much opportunity to contribute and to really do good in the world. So it's been not, nothing that I have regretted at all. And um, I, I'm just grateful to have had all these opportunities. That is really great. I mean, you both have such an extensive background in addiction treatment and so much experience. I'm curious, how would you define successful addiction treatment in your experience? I mean, I think for me, the way I define it really starts with how the patient defines it, right? So when we are setting up, a, working with patients and, and, and setting goals and treatment plans, it's really determining what does the patient, uh, how do they define success? And sometimes our de definitions may be convergent, but it's the patient's treatment, right? And we're working on their treatment plan. And so I define it by how well somebody is doing in, in terms of reaching the treatment goals that they established at the start of their treatment. And also recognizing that during the course of treatment, those goals may change, um, but really how well somebody is doing in terms of progressing along the um, and making progress towards the goals that they set for themselves. And Dr. Jarvis, I mean, same question, but I would also ask, in your opinion, what are some of the primary goals of addiction treatment from your perspective in a, in a general sense? So, you know, I'm with her. And, but also, I think there's an, from the providers, whether that provider is a physician an advanced practice uh, provider, a counselor of some stripe, we have a very clear obligation to make sure that we are diagnosing people very carefully and providing appropriate evidence-based information about the likely progress of the disease, treatment options, and then negotiating with the patient about what might be available to them in terms of treatment and where that's likely to get them. And if both people, both parties, can come to that treatment with that kind of clarity, things go better. Things just go better. It's really interesting, and it kind of leads to our next question. Uh, you both recently co-authored the report, Substance Use Disorder Treatment Falls Short of the Need. Um, can you share with our audience what elements you considered in assessing whether or not treatment services met the needs of patients in respective communities? What I will say is, so this was a survey that was done. So they surveyed, the um, New England Journal staff surveyed um, practicing uh, clinicians, um, healthcare administrators, both globally and international, well, both nationally and internationally. So global, attempting to get a global perspective. And it was really um, what the respondents said in their answers in terms of how we determined um, that there is a great need for uh, addiction treatment and, and 
um, continued need for development of both primary care clinicians, but also addiction specialists. Then maybe a, a question to follow up to that would be, um, what do you feel are some of the most common barriers in, in your experience that you see preventing patients from accessing treatment or succeeding in their addiction treatment? So stigma is number one, two, and three. Uh, that that interferes with everything. <clears throat> many, many um, physicians, other healthcare providers, hospital administrators want nothing to do with this disease or the people who have it. After that, there's the issue that the patients had felt the stigma all their lives. They're reluctant to approach us as well. So there's just a huge amount right there that is a huge barrier. We can go into um, things like how much education physicians and other providers get about this disease, about the um, the lack of space for lack of a better word, but also meaning time and support and everything else for people who are not specialists to sit down with patients and talk about difficult things. And it doesn't matter whether it's a substance use disorder or a cancer diagnosis. The primary care doctors do not have that kind of resilience in their schedules and in their clinic supports to be able to have those kinds of difficult conversations. So that's another barrier. Then we can go into insurance reimbursements and how that's a disincentive in many, many ways to providing good care. Um, so there's there's a lot that you could unpack there, but those are some of the big ones I'm thinking about. Nico, what are you thinking about? I mean, I think you hit on a lot of them. I think, as you said, stigma, um, both um, external stigma, but also internalized stigma um, is a big barrier in terms of people accessing treatment. I think we also know that there are disparities and inequities in terms of who's offered treatment. So there's a lot of data that will um, that tells us that Black people, Black and brown people, are, are less commonly offered, at least for opiate use disorder, less commonly offered medications for treatment of opiate use disorder, particularly phenorphine, mm -hmm. or maybe more likely to be diverted to a different medication. Um, there are marked inequities in terms of um, the rate at which people are dying. So again, I, I, I'm working on, I'm more familiar with this data because I'm working on a presentation, but the rates for deaths for Black people, particularly middle-aged Black men, but also um, Indigenous or Indigenous communities, so American Indian and Alaska Natives, far outseeds those um, for whites at, at this point in terms of the rates. But when you look at media story and human interest stories, um, those are not the faces that you typically see. So I think there are a number of different um, things that contribute to people's difficulty in accessing treatment. And, and certainly um, you know, racism and bias are, are, is one of those. You both kind of touched on it, mentioning um, clinicians and primary care providers. I'm curious, and, and Dr. Alvanzo, I believe in the, in the report you mentioned, primary care providers might be able to cover some of the addiction medicine workload. But would you be able to provide some examples of how some of these primary care clinicians uh, would be able to contribute to addiction medicine care? Absolutely. So again, addiction is a chronic disease. Primary care clinicians are 
typically managing chronic diseases and um, just as they do with other diseases. So many people with mild to even moderate addiction can be managed in the primary care setting. Um, and so in terms of what a primary care clinician needs to do, I think certainly ensuring that their practice is engaging in universal screening for risky or unhealthy substance use, and then having somebody in their practice, if it's not them, who has is skilled at doing a, a deeper assessment for those people who screen positive. Um, brief intervention. So there's a lot of data, particularly for people with mild um, and maybe even some moderate disease, that just having the their primary care uh, clinician with whom they have a relationship say something and intervene, make a comment about um, their substance use and, and the potential risk of, of their substance use can actually initiate um, ongoing behavior change. And then being willing to prescribe medication for addiction, whether it's medication for alcohol use disorder or medication for opiate use disorder, medication for tobacco or nicotine use disorder, and then recognizing when you've hit, you have exceeded your ability to safely treat in the practice and being able to refer to specialty care and knowing what those specialty care resources are in your community. So uh, as Dr. Alvanza said, and just asking the question, or just making it clear. I see that your liver enzymes are elevated. Tell me a little bit about your use of alcohol. That has actually a lot of power. Um, that having that kind of question come up has big impact on a on a patient. So that that right there is huge. And to the extent that they can then say, yeah, you know, addiction specialist physician. Once you've got that patient stabilized on buprenorphine, send them back. And as long as we've got a relationship, and I know you'll help me out when the patient's severity is more than I can handle, that so that just establishing those relationships is actually a, a big step in a good direction as well. I'm interested as well, uh, I believe, Dr. Jarvis, you mentioned uh, there's a shortage of addiction medicine specialists and it would take years to remedy that situation. Yeah. Could uh, you and Dr. Alvanzo as well elaborate a little on the reasons behind this long timeline for addressing the shortage in addiction medicine specialists? So as Dr. Alvanzo mentioned earlier, um, addiction medicine was only recognized as a medical specialty by the American Board of Medical Specialties four or five years ago now. Um, it, it's, been, it's been quite recent. And so in not having that specialty imprimatur has led to a situation where there might've been people who were interested in doing this work, but who didn't wanna get into something that was not mainstream medicine. So just that little piece right there has set us back a number of years. Likewise, the fact that over decades, less money has gone into substance use disorder research than in other parts of medicine means that we're playing catch up in terms of doing things like defining what, what good care is. And without things like guidelines, 
a hospital or a practice can't set particularly effective quality improvement uh, goals. And so there's a piece of we're catching up, we're catching up, we're catching up. It has been interesting, the um, federal government in response to the opiate crisis has put money into trying to train specialist physicians. And that has done a, a lot of things and helped in terms of loan repayments, um, opening up slots in addiction medicine fellowships and stuff like that. And while all of that is now being put in place, the uptake into those new training spots is not occurring. And we hope it's yet. We hope that's going to be happening in the next several years. But as of yet, we've got still got an awful lot of open training slots for this specialty. Yeah, and, and I'll just add, I mean, we, in terms of being behind, we're way behind in terms of our medical education. So I don't remember receiving any education in medical school about uh, substance use and treatment of addiction. I, I just don't remember it. I was fortunate to go to Virginia Commonwealth University for my residency and um, had the opportunity. They actually had an addiction consultation service, you know, almost unheard of in, in many other places. So that's how, you know, those those experiences and then the research experience I mentioned was, was how I even knew that this was an option, right? Um, and even now, um, trying to get space in a in a medical school curriculum is is challenging. And then and then when we look at graduate medical education. So I ran an addiction medicine rotation. Um, when I was on faculty at Johns Hopkins and, and all of the urban health residents rotated through it, but they were a small proportion of the internal medicine residents. And so we have a long way to go in terms of our medical education. And, and, and when I say medical, I'm looking at um, not only medical schools, but schools of nursing, schools for physician assistants, pharmacy, et cetera, in terms of educating healthcare providers about um, diagnosing and treating addiction. I'm curious too, uh, expanding on that a little bit, because we do know that addiction is a treatable disease. Um, can you both speak a little to the efficacy of the medications that we have for things like SUDs, the barriers? Um, you spoke a little bit about the stigma, but even patient access to some of these medications. So what I will say is we have very effective medications for opiate use disorder. We have two effective medications, we have three medications for opiate use disorder. Um, I would argue that the opioid agonist medications are um, more effective than the other medication, but we have three medications for opiate use disorder. Um, we also have medications for alcohol use disorder, less effective um, than those medications for opiate use disorder. Similarly, for tobacco or nicotine use disorder, we have effective medications that when prescribed um, can be effective at helping people stop smoking or stop um, use of tobacco because not everybody smokes cigarettes at this point. We've been vaping, other, other um, methods of use. Um, unfortunately, for some of our other substances, we don't have um, as effective medications, but there are effective behavioral strategies, right? So for, for stimulant use, um, you know, contingency management, which is a behavioral strategy, is probably the thing that's been found to be most effective in treatment of stimulant use disorder. 
Um, but until recently, there wasn't a lot of funding for that. And even the funding that has been released um, is not consistent with the levels um, that were shown to be beneficial in, in the research. And so um, we have effective treatments in many areas, but we do need more funding for people to be able to access um, some of those treatments. I don't know that I've got a lot to add there, although the the one thing that I would I would bring into the conversation is that the use of medications and the use of um, certain treatments like contingency management are not always new, but they haven't been widely embraced by the historical traditional treatment industry, which has been largely founded on 12-step work. And 12-step work is wonderful for some people. It isn't uh, a be-all and end-all for everyone, however. And there are certainly some substance use disorders where very, very clearly a different kind of professional treatment or a medication is much more efficacious. Now, I've got to ask to close out our interview today. This, Since this interview, uh, it's, it's going to be shared during National Addiction Treatment Week. I'd love to hear what you would both say to the medical community about treating addiction. What do you think is an important takeaway for this week to understand about uh, treating addiction? I think what I would say is that treating addiction can be one of the most rewarding um, experiences of your career. Um, again, when we think of, so again, I'm internal medicine trained, so thinking of um, treatment of, of, of chronic conditions, um, there aren't that many conditions where you can see the, the depth of change when somebody is um, is responding to their treatment the way you can with addiction. Um, and not only um, the change that you see with addiction, not only uh, relates to re uh, less use of substances, um, but because how addiction impacts all aspects of one's life, you can see restoration in family relationships, restoration in, in what, we would consider social functioning, return to work, return to employment. It just, it can be so rewarding. Um, and that is what I would want to share with the medical community. And you, you're saving lives. You are literally saving lives. I can't add anything to that. What she said. <laughs> well, I have to thank both you, Dr. Alvonso, Dr. Jarvis. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today and for, for sharing your thoughts for National Addiction Treatment Week. We really do appreciate your time. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for joining us today as we delved into the important challenges facing addiction medicine. As we wrap up, I want to leave you with a call to action that can truly make a difference. National Addiction Treatment Week is here. It's running from October 16th to the 22nd, and it's an opportunity for all of us to take part in something transformative. The insights that Dr. Alvonso and Jarvis shared today, they're not just for our understanding, they're really a rallying cry for change. Addiction is not a moral failing. It's a treatable disease, and recovery is possible. So here's what you can do. First, mark your calendars for October 16th to the 22nd. During this week, take a moment to learn, to listen, and to engage with us. Follow the week across social media channels using the hashtag TreatmentWeek to engage. 
Visit TreatAddictionSaveLives.org, that's TreatAddictionSaveLives.org, to access valuable resources, stories of hope, and information on how you can contribute. Second, use your voice. Share what you've learned today and throughout National Addiction Treatment Week. On your social media channels, with your friends, use the hashtag Treatment Week to help amplify this crucial message. Your posts, your shares, your engagement, it can reach someone who needs to hear that recovery is possible. And finally, check out our show notes for a link to Dr. Alvonso and Dr. Jarvis's report and resources on addiction. Together, we can break down the stigma surrounding addiction within the medical community. Together, we can inspire change, and together, we can make a difference. Your participation matters, your voice matters, and your actions matter. Thank you for listening, and until next time, let's continue to treat addiction and save lives.